Welcome to the Psychology of Case Management podcast, the show that helps you use psychological ideas to strengthen your relationship with your catastrophically injured clients and their professional network, so you can achieve more for your clients and feel more fulfilled in your role. Hi, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Psychology of Case Management podcast. I'm Shabnam Berry Khan. In the last episode, I had the pleasure of talking to Eleanor Tallon, a qualified best interest assessor who passionately and clearly talked us through the Mental Capacity Act and its five core principles. The original recording was quite long, so I decided to split it into two separate episodes, essentially extracting the case study to make this current episode. So forgive the slight disjointedness of it all, but I do hope it's still a helpful way to see how to apply the Mental Capacity Act uh, in terms of those five principles and the complexities and the processes that we would need to consider as personal injury professionals. So here's Eleanor Tallon once more, uh, this time applying the Mental Capacity Act to a personal injury client. Enjoy. I had um, just kind of come up with um, a case study that was I felt would be you know, relevant for the case manager audience or you know, other relate professionals. And it was, I'd called this person Charlie. Charlie has a, a brain injury and he has dysarthria, but he can, you know, communicate quite well. But it does give a better account of his abilities than, than is seen in practice mm. and behave in ways which challenge others. And that's felt to be triggered when his decisions are questioned. So he's got a financial deputy, but the case manager is concerned regarding his capacity to make decisions about his care and rehabilitation. Okay, so I suppose in terms of applying the Mental Capacity Act, um, I think if you've got concerns about that capacity, then, you know, the, the process, I guess, would be, well, of course, would be then to follow, you know, doing a, a mental capacity assessment. And the first and foremost important thing when we're doing a capacity assessment is to clarify the decision so, you know, there's the sometimes I, can, I do see statements about people, you know, not having capacity to make decisions, but that's a really sweeping statement. And it's really kind of on dodgy legal ground to ever say that because, you know, unless you've actually done a specific capacity assessment on a specific decision and found that they lacked capacity after applying the functional test, then you, you know, there's no real, there's no, there's no justification to say that. So, yeah, mm. so it's about defining the decision and I would say that in this situation the decision would be around you know can Charlie consent to the interventions which are being proposed as part of his care and rehabilitation plan so you'd, you could break that down further once you've got you know the specific interventions that you that you're considering and if you have kind of you know if you've discussed these with with Charlie and you feel that you know it doesn't quite have as much insight as 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 you know what you'd expect for him to make his own decision then yeah then you would enter into doing a capacity assessment and to to break down further then you'd want to get the relevant information as to what what would he need to understand to make that decision and I always refer to 39 Essex Street because they're a law firm who um specialize in kind of well court protection stuff I guess um mental capacity and, and best in, best interest decision making you know they've got a really great set of good guidance that includes lots of updates with you know relevant case law 
So that's the go-to place, I would say, for anybody mm. wanting information. Um, good tip, thanks. Yeah, good guidance. So, yeah, and, and they have set out, um, you know, just a, a basic criteria as to what, would, what kind of information would be needed for somebody to make a decision about their, their care and support. And they've listed five areas, but of course you would personalise this, you know, to Charlie or whoever it was you were, you were assessing. But basically, in which areas does the, need, uh, does the person need support? Uh, what specific support do they need? Who will provide that support? What would happen without the support or if the support was refused? And I would just mention, you know, any risks at that point. And is the person aware that they can make a complaint if they're not happy with the support that they receive? Mm. So, yeah, so I, I, would, I would get that, that list kind of written out so you can define it clearly in your head so you know what, what are the kind of things you need to be discussing with Charlie and how, you know, how best would you approach that so you could plan as to how best to, you know, actually convey that information and try to get his responses. So, you know, again, thinking about supported decision-making, you know, is, is written information better? Would he benefit from pictures? Um, could you even watch a video of something, you know, to, to show the kinds of support you might get or actually him go and see something in, in, in real life to get a feel for what, what it is? Yeah, and using whether or not does he need an advocate or family or, or even interpreter or, or whatnot to be, you know, to support with, with the communication. And even simple things such as, you know, what time of day is he, is he most focused? You know, where does he feel most comfortable? What, what location would be best to, to have the discussion? Using short sentences, um, open and close questions. Anything basically, you know, make a list, make a plan as to how you would dis- have this discussion with him. And that, you know, obviously that, that will change based on each and every person, I guess. But that's really supported decision-making right there, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And then you would put all of your efforts into that, into supported decision-making. But then obviously, if you have gone through the functional test of capacity, and um, I'm sure listeners are aware of what that is, but it's basically understand, he can understand, he can retain, he can weigh up and he can communicate the four, there's four areas. Um, so if there's, if, if there's one area in which he's unable to perform and you feel that he doesn't on balance meet, meet that, then, you, you know, that's when you could say that he does actually lack capacity. But I would say that you, you'd need to be specific kind of, because there might be some areas of his care plan that he can um, agree to uh, and consent to validly and understand and have capacity to, to you know, to consent to. But there might be other areas which is, you know, is more complex, um, you know, so, so it's really kind of keeping things down quite clearly for, for him and for yourself. And, you know, it is on a balance of probabilities, you know, as, as well. So I would just mention, obviously, here, because um, we've got Charlie who has a brain injury. So he potentially could be displaying, you know, the um, elements of the frontal lobe paradox. Um, and so obviously he may then, you know, that with, because of executive dysfunction, um, he, he may be, be able to kind of speak to you about things and, 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 and rationalise things, but then actually trying to do those things in practice might be quite difficult. So, you know, to, he, he may be able to talk the talk, but he can't actually walk the walk maybe. So it's, you've got to kind of be mindful of that with, with somebody who, who, who has a brain injury because, 
um, it, you know, it might not it might not warrant a, a one off capacity assessment. It, it may it may well need um, a repeated um, assessment process. You know, rather than it being a one off, it's maybe a, a duration and, and uh, an ongoing assessment um, for a period of time. And actually, you know, triangulation, being able to triangulate the evidence as to what you would, um, you know, the, the, the information that you might receive from his carers, his family, the, the other professionals that are involved and the records they may have kept um, or their verbal, you know, kind of account of, of what, what they've, they've, you know, they've, they've known of him. Get that information and, and use that, utilise that as part of your capacity assessment because, you know that is important with somebody who may have fluctuating capacity. So they may, you know, they may it may be at that point in time that they have um, capacity. But then, if the majority of the rest of the time they don't have it, then that's got to be taken into account if it's an ongoing kind of specific, especially if it's an ongoing decision. So some some care, um, you know, some decisions might be a one off decision. So you might just do do a capacity assessment, and that might be enough. But if it's something where you know, for example, if somebody's making a decision to go into a, a care home and, well, what, one, you know, to, to, to have the ongoing support that they have within, within a care home, um, so uh, overriding, uh, you know, an overriding deprivation of their liberty, that is what's what would be known as, a, as an ongoing decision, um, you know, because they're not just, you know, they've kind of got to consent to the same stuff over and over and over again. So, you know, a one-off, a one-off capacity assessment might might not suffice if it's somebody with fluctuating capacity mm-hmm. um you know so you've so that's obviously got to be taken into account going on from that as we discussed before if the person if if charlie does lack capacity you would consider whether you know you think about unwise decisions you would have to make sure that the that his lack of capacity or his lack his inability to make the decision was based um, and resulting from his his brain injury um, rather than something else um, because that's what's known as the causative nexus um, and that would mm. it, you know if if you feel someone doesn't isn't able to make a decision based on other things um, such as I don't know you, you know you you've got to be very clear in your assessment that it's 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 you feel on the balance of probabilities it is due to his, his impairment rather than a personality trait or, you know, um, him making an unwise decision, of course. Um, you know, so you've got to be able to very clearly marry that up in terms of, um, you know, your conclusion, really. And then, as, as we've discussed, best interests. So going through to making a best interest decision, um, you would go through the process as, as set out, you know, in the guidance. You might want to consider... If it's a really a, a situation where there's lots of conflict with family in terms of what might be best, you know, once mm. the person is assessed as lacking capacity and there's like a bit of a, a debate, I guess, as to what would be the, the best course of action, um, I would say consider a, a best interest meeting um, because it's it's quite a simple thing to, to, to do. It doesn't have to be overly formal. And if it involves, you know, certain family members who have got a lot to say and want to be heard um you know it can be quite positive it can be quite therapeutic it can help to lay out 
you know, the perspectives and ha have a really open and transparent kind of dialogue about what the issues are and why the decision is being made in the way or, or why people think, you know, that that decision would be best for, for the person. Um, and obviously, and involving Charlie himself so that he's aware of why people are, you know, doing these things and making these decisions on his behalf. Um, if that's if that's appropriate, you know, sometimes mm. it can be. You know, a bit like could, mediation or something in more sort of legal settings where you might, yeah, you know, I, outside I guess, of a more formal set uh, context. Yeah, but I guess but one of the things I would say and 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 promote is kind of it's better to not get to the point if if it's yeah. not required if you can resolve something amicably in a in a in a less formal situation then why go to the trouble of of every of, and the stress for you know for everybody involved. I'm not saying that you shouldn't go to court protection because if it's necessary and if it's complex and if there's debate that's just cannot, you know, that's not resolvable, mm. it's entirely appropriate course of action apply to court protection for legal scrutiny. Um, but there are situations where, you know, you can kind of, I've kind of seen cases um, or read through cases or whatnot in court protection thinking, why wasn't this just, you know, a conversation that could have been had between certain professionals and the people involved um, prior to, mm. you know, making a, a lengthy, costly application to court protection. So yeah, I mean, if it's if it's appropriate, you know, to just arrange maybe um, a simple meeting, something fairly informal, giving everyone a space to, you know, have their say, be listened to, be heard, and it might be the best the best interest decision might might change based on what is discussed as part of that meeting. Um, you know, it might be that actually the decision maker might feel that, you know, a different course of action might be better. So, yeah, I think a best interest decision, um, a best interest meeting, sorry, is, is, is a really good, um, is good practice if there is kind of any um, controversy or complexity. I've, so, I've seen a best interest meeting work really, really well with one of our clients. Um, and it was exactly that situation, that scenario that you described, sort yeah. of lots of family members. And actually, it really, it really helped uh, the family calm down yeah. in a way that um, I honestly never thought they would. It yeah. was such an important intervention. Yeah, um, because otherwise it was getting it was getting really ugly. Actually, it was getting really yeah. complicated, and we were just thinking the only way forward is going to be some kind of application to yeah. the courts. <laughs> yeah. But that's the thing, and and it's and it's it's mirac miraculous what can happen when people communicate in a in a decent manner, and there's a structure to that communication. You know, it's it's all good and well people you know having one off conversations, but. You know, having that kind of, um, it's like a family group conference. I mean, that's an intervention in itself yeah. within, within children's services, you know, that, that actually that intervention where people are heard and listened to and feel acknowledged, it just re reduces the amount of stress and distress that might be caused. And, and it's the education as well. You know, it might be that the family members just don't quite understand why a, a decision, you know, why, they, why they're choice or their thing that they want to happen isn't happening it might be that they just don't understand from the professional's perspective so it's a it's a meeting of minds and it's breaking down those barriers um you know and actually it, it's encouraging you know working in partnership which is what we should be doing um across the board with you know within different health social care 
you know, whatever services we, we, we're working in. Um, we should be working in partnership and, you know, kind of giving, giving, giving a, a platform for, um, you know, people that are interested in the person's welfare to, to, to have a space to be included in that, being inclusive and getting their views because that, that will always, you know, as long as that the person who's, who's interested, you know, obviously the person himself must be at the forefront and they should be involved as long as they, they're not going to get distressed about being involved in, say, a best interest mm. meeting. It sounds a bit, a bit like it's um, it's kind of the, the 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 consensual outcome, the one that everyone sort of they may not get the the outcome exactly that they want, but they bought into it enough. Is is kind of the uh, the methodology. It's not you know because there isn't a, you know a single test or a you know anything that is going to different you know isn't going to absolutely define what the outcome ought to be. But it's just. Yeah people understanding each other's perspectives as you say and, and yeah. kind of agreeing on something consensually together Absolutely, this is yeah. the best forward this way this is the best way forward yeah there's no power then you know there's no one kind of dominating or less likely that someone will dominate that's always the case I think sometimes you you know the people can be can have you know get the backs up um when mm. and professionals get involved you know, I don't know if this is the case within the case manager kind of world because I've not yet stepped into that. Um, but certainly within social care, you know, just being a professional can kind of put you on the back, put people on the back foot from working with you because of, you know, having had, you know, negative experiences. So it's your, it's your role and your duty to, to, to change that around and show how embracing you are and, and how, you know, and how actually it's not, you know, getting involved um, and delivering any service is is not something that you do to someone. It's something that you do as a joint effort that you co you know that you co produce together with the person themselves and and the family members or the other people that are involved with that person and important to them. Um, you know, and when it comes to mental capacity assessment, you know, you need those people involved because you need to get information from them. Well, you know, certainly, I guess within you know. With, with brain injury, um, you know, as, as I've mentioned, you know, triangulation and getting evidence from others will be part and parcel of the actual process of assessing their capacity. Mm. So they will, before you even get to a, uh, a best interest decision point, you know, it might be that they have capacity or whatever, but, you know, before you even get there, you should have the family and the people also involved with the person on board so that when, if you did need to make a best interest decision, they're already on that journey with you as as mm. as a professional. So it's so I think that's the thing about you know not being scared of um, mental capacity assessment and whatnot because I think people feel there's a, there's a massive level of responsibility on them. But the thing is, um, you, you know, that's maybe the, the wrong way to look at it because you know you're more of a conduit um, in terms of you know you're channeling information because you're gaining the expertise from the person, from the people that are involved with the person, from other professionals that are involved with the person. So you're gaining their expertise as well. So all you're simply doing is kind of analysing that and, and, and processing that. And if you do get to the point where, you know, you feel that they lack capacity and, and you need a best interest decision, you know, in terms of being a decision maker, that again, doing, doing a best interest meeting is, is really useful because even as the decision maker, you're able to draw on everybody else's input as to what they think the decision should be. So it's almost like a blending and a uniting of, of, of a team decision mm. rather than you 
you know, being um, a decision maker. And I'll just kind of clarify as to, as to the point around decision making, you know, being a decision maker in a best interest decision. If you are kind of doing the assessment and it's around kind of a care type, you know, the, the decision maker will be different basically for, for different issues. So if the decision is a, is a medical one, for example, the decision maker would be the, you know, the, the, the consultant, the, the medical professional who is mm-hmm. delivering or, or, or suggesting you know, that, that treatment or that, that um, service, what, whatever it is. So it, there is you know, specific kind of guidelines as to, as to decision, who, who would be the decision maker in, in situations. But certainly with Charlie's um, example, um, and looking at, you know, um, his capacity to consent really to his care plan. You know, you would be the decision maker in that. If, you're, if you've assessed somebody and you've put, you know, a support plan together, then you, you would need to kind of assess whether they, consent, they can consent to the support plan or it might be the individual parts of the plan, you know, depending on, on what was on the plan, those aspects might be um, somebody else would, would take the lead role in being a decision maker if, you know, if they lacked capacity on that specific, you know, area. But ultimately, um, when you are kind of assessing somebody and, you know, you're kind of going through things in terms of recommending care, a care, recommending a care plan, you know, at that point, you know, you do need to get consent from the person. Um, and that would be, and if you had concerns at that point, maybe you'd, you'd you know, you'd be best placed to, to, to assess the capacity um, and then take it from there, really. So um, in terms of applying a principle five to Charlie's situation, the least restrictive options, how would that, um, how would you consider that? In terms of least restrictive options, um, principle five and applying that with Charlie, I guess, you know, we have discussed in terms of best interest and doing things that are most reflective um, and, you know, in affiliation with what, what he wants. So just keeping that in mind, making sure that, you know, that, that whatever option is the best interest option is, 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 is least restrictive on his, on his freedoms and, his, and his, his, his ability to choose. So being in line with his choices. And actually, um, there's also the option of of not having the specific thing you know so if if he if he's kind of objecting to something you know the the option of actually not having that intervention having a look at whether or not that is the least restrictive or you know basing kind of that balance sheet again Mm. going back to the balance sheet looking at you know because there may be a certain option there may be an alternative option and there may be you know, not having, not, not doing anything is, is another option. So that's something that, that has to be considered. Um, and if, and, you know, if, if Charlie doesn't want to do something, then, you know, ultimately, I guess that's, that's sometimes something that, you know, you, you've got to, you've got to work with that. But yeah, I, it's just obviously least restrictive, making sure that um, even, even if, it's, if, 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 if the person isn't able to, you know, voice their, their thoughts and concerns, um, or their wishes um, that you are doing things which doesn't impose too much on their human rights or least imposes you know on their human rights so when we're talking about that we're talking about kind of article five for example the rights to liberty freedom the rights article eight the, the, the rights to private and family life 
you know, so having respect for their, you know, for, for what would be normally their, their privacy, um, you know, because obviously, you know, professionals getting involved or carers getting involved is an impingement upon somebody's, you know, privacy if people are going into somebody's own home, you know, so, and there's a, a myriad of, of other, other human rights that need to be, to, to be considered. But yeah, it's, it's whatever is least imposing on the person's rights is, is always going to be least restrictive. So thinking about how to apply the Mental Capacity Act is quite a process. It's quite a, a full piece of work in itself. And we should be thinking about it with our clients every step of the way. Being able to define the question, being able to support our clients to with the structures that they need to make a decision, and then being able to decide whether capacity is present or not. It's been really helpful to hear those five points to think about prior to assessing capacity, understanding the area of need, understanding what specific support is needed, understanding who provides that support and what would happen without that support. And interestingly, thinking about how the client can make a complaint, all transparent, all above board and all necessary in order to assess capacity in the best possible way. All of which, of course, needs to be documented as we've heard in both episodes. Right, well, I shall leave it there for now. All the best with your mental capacity assessments for your clients um, and happy empowering. Bye for now. Before you go, if you enjoyed the episode today, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate it on whatever platform you're listening on and share and like on your social media profiles. Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow and to be a continuous resource for all. And if there's any topic you wish for us to cover, please drop us a line on our website. Thank you so much for all your support. 